So we're channeling a bit of uh, Jessica Jones there with uh, that uh, opening video. Launching a brand new series uh, today. It's gonna be a three-week series called, as the video suggested, Overcomer. And we're gonna look at three key areas that in our modern Western cultural context can be things that actually keep us down and keep us from experiencing God's best. Starting today, actually, with a message I'm gonna talk about, overcoming the curse of comparison. So I wonder if some of you may have ever found yourself liking the home that you live in until you sat down and opened the domain or the realestate.com.au app and started swiping by some nearby houses, you know? Well, my kitchen sucks. My lounge room sucks. My uh, outdoor alfresco entertaining area sucks. And, and, and comparing where we're at and where we're living with where other people are at and, and where they're living. Or maybe you've liked your car until the guy at work turned up with the newest, fastest, fully sickest car and all of a sudden your car didn't quite come up to speed. Maybe just in general liking your life until you open Instagram and started scrolling and everyone's posting their highlight reels and you're thinking, yeah, okay. Turns out my life isn't so great after all. Comparison kills contentment. And this isn't actually the first time I've taught about comparison. In in fact, maybe 10 years ago, it might've been a, a topic we would cover every two or three years. But the reality is that it's never been easier in the history of Western society than it is today to compare ourselves with other people. Yes, the obvious protagonist is social media. And as I mentioned, people only post their highlight reel where you have to live your own life behind the scenes. You get to see how your sausage is made and doesn't always look as pretty as it does in the showroom window. So we teach about it more often, but actually there's another protagonist which may be a little bit sneakier. It's, it's what's generically referred to as reality TV. And can I just state for the record, there is very little reality surrounding reality TV. Reality TV is produced by producers, written by writers, edited by editors, directed by directors, and the so-called reality TV people are actually just the talent who deliver scripted content. There's very little reality around reality TV. But if we don't realise that, we can look at some of these very glammed up uh, snapshots of, of these so-called reality people and compare ourselves to them and find ourselves discontent. Nine Life, there's a classic, seems harmless enough until you realise that Chip and Joanna Gaines have not come to your house and upped your shiplap content anytime recently. They might as well call Nine Life better than your life as their little marketing slogan and just wipe our nose in it, call it what it is. With comparison, there is actually ditches on both sides of the road if you walk down a road of comparison. There's the road, the obvious one of inferiority that you can start to look at people whose situations, whose kids, whose marriages, whose houses, whose jobs, whose financial setting looks better than yours. And you can start, if you compare yourself to them, 
feeling inferior. There's also a ditch on the other side of the road, and this maybe isn't either as obvious or we're not necessarily always as willing to admit it, is that comparison can even, in some cases, cause a superiority complex to pop up. You know, you, you may get an inferiority complex when you scroll through social media and you see your friend, they've just been upgraded from economy to business class. And the reason you know this is because they took a, a, a screenshot of their boarding pass and circled the word business on there and they put it up there. In fact, there's an ancient Zen proverb that says, if you get upgraded to business class and don't post it on social media, did you really get upgraded? And so, but, but, but here's the thing, I've been the upgradee. In, in, in my previous job, I traveled a lot and I was very loyal to Qantas. And uh, I would always book economy, but you travel regularly with, with uh, a particular airline, even though you only paid economy, as and when they need to bump somebody up, you actually rise to the top of the pile. And so I would reasonably often find myself upgraded into business class. And so with business class, you get to board first, uh, calling the uh, business class passengers to line up in the uh, left uh, gate while the rest of you peasants can wait outside. And so I take my newly minted business class upgrade boarding pass and shimmy down and sit in front of the curtain, in the front of the plane. And I would sit there and before the rest of the peasants get on, you get your little complimentary champagne, your broadsheet uh, newspaper. And here's the thing. I would sit there with my champers and my broadsheet newspaper while these economy people were schlepping past me and I'm sitting there going, yeah, I am better than you. And yet I did nothing to deserve that particular thing, comparing myself to them, winding up with a bit of a feeling of superiority. And if you live your life fueled by comparison, with other people, you'll be living with what Andy Stanley calls the pursuit of er. I don't mean er, I mean the pursuit of er. That you start framing your goals in life around being rich er, healthy er, happy er. And, and the comparison isn't about being rich er than you are now. We can start to slip down a very slippery slope to, to, to being fueled by the motivation of being richer than somebody else, healthier than somebody else, happier than somebody else. The pursuit of er. Now, I wanna qualify three things when it comes to comparison because actually not all comparison is bad. There in, is in fact, I believe, room for healthy and a place for healthy comparison. Let me explain. Three qualifications. Number one, there's nothing wrong with being richer, healthier, or happier. Providing it's than I am now is what you're comparing it to. I would like to have a few more financial resources than I do now so I can do more of what God's called me to do. Healthy. I would like to have better health, be healthier, Er than I am now, than I am now, not comparing myself to the person next to me. These are all fine. These are healthy comparisons. Also, don't confuse contentment. Comparison kills contentment. Don't confuse contentment 
with settling. See, with God, there's always more. God is the God who is more than enough. God is the God who is able to do immeasurably more than you can even ask for or imagine. God is the God who is the provider. God is the God who is the source and He's never gonna run out and He's never gonna run dry. With God, there's always more. So we don't actually ever have to settle. We don't actually ever have to settle for less than God's best in any area of life. There's always more. We don't ever have to settle. Yet, we often find ourselves in the waiting room between where we are and where God's called us to be. The waiting room between where we are and the promise that God's put in front of us. And the, and the risk is to settle, but we're not meant to settle. And yet what we can find ourselves doing is while we're in the waiting room is starting to feel discontent. But there's a difference between settling and contentment. Settling often has to do with our circumstances. Our circumstances aren't where they're meant to be, aren't where God's promised they're gonna be. And so we settle and we go, well, it's probably never gonna happen for me. Well, I'll just, you know, kind of camp out here. It's better than, you know, something. Whereas contentment isn't actually linked to our circumstances. Contentment is actually linked to a peace that resides on the inside of us a peace that God's Spirit brings to us, a peace that we can even have in the midst of bad circumstances or less than God's best circumstances. There's a difference between contentment and settling. You might currently be renting. The house you're living in isn't your own, you're renting. And, and, you, and you have a promise, you have a dream, you have a goal that one day you're gonna own your own home. Fantastic. You don't have to settle to live the rest of your life renting if that's not what God's called you to be, but you can have a contentment in the current season and circumstance you're in while you're renting. You may be working a job that is not your dream job and you may be pursuing a course of study that's gonna get, get you a, a better uh, ability to, to, to move into a better job. You, you may be looking at just the, you know, uh, moving up through the ranks within your current uh, business or industry. You don't have to settle, but you can be content while you're doing the thing that you're doing because there's purpose and God can find and fashion purpose in every season and in every circumstance, you don't have to settle. Louis and I, I like to have a bit of land where I live. I like to have a little bit of outdoor space because I like to grow things that you can eat, vegetables, fruits, and so on and so forth. And uh, we moved back to Perth uh, eight years ago, having been interstate for a short time. And the house that we bought uh, was built on the back, in the backyard of the original house. And they just brick paved the whole thing around us. So we, we had no land and we lived there for nearly six, seven years. And I gotta tell you, I went stir crazy when I just started thinking about my need for some land. I just, I, I, I didn't need a McMansion. I just wanted some land because I just wanted to be able to grow some stuff that I can eat. And, and we didn't give up the dream of being able to buy a house with some land. We didn't settle for less than this, this uh, thing that we wanted to do. And yet we didn't live discontent in the time that we were in that house either. We, we asked ourselves the question, how God, how can you, how can you use us? 
give us insight, give us strategies, help us see how we can not just live content, but, but actually be used by God because you can have contentment when you're not yet where God's called you to be. You can also have purpose in that season as well. And so we held, led an Elevate group uh, every year in that home and it was cozy, and, but it worked. And we entertained team members and leaders in that home. And again, it was cozy and we had to shimmy and shake, but it worked. And, and God actually uh, had, gave us the opportunity about a year ago to buy a, a house um, that has land. And uh, so I've got chickens in my, in, in my uh, future. I've got bees in my future and we've got vegetables and fruit again in our future. Um, the, the little insertion story, a few of you know this, is that having sold the house we were in with no land and bought a house that we've bought with land, that house has got a tenant in there until late January. And so we've had to find a rental p- uh, property to live in between selling and buying. So we're currently living in a rental property. 80% of our worldly possessions, we just left them in the removalist boxes because we're gonna have to move them again anyway in January. And so we're living in this t- it's a tiny house. In-, in fact, to give you some idea, uh, I'm actually limping today because uh, this morning I went to iron this shirt and uh, there's actually no room to set up the ironing board in our house. So I kind of have figured out this thing. If I can push it in a particular kind of corner next to the washing machine and perform a specific sequence of gymnastics moves, I can get into position to iron and then somehow extricate myself. But I miscalculated the gymnastics moves this morning and, and I, I kicked my, my foot against the corner of the wall and, and Marco did a boo-boo and, and it hurts a lot. Like right now, I'm in quite a lot of pain. And I let out an adult word and Louis said, what's wrong? And I said, I said, I feel like Gulliver in this house. That's what's wrong. My size 10 and a half feet, which is just got an average size feet, are too big for this house. But in that house, we we have continued to ask the question, God, even though we're not settling for staying here, what, do you, what can you do with us in this time? How can you use us in this time? And so we launched an Elevate group there and uh, we kind of don't really have any room for, for anybody to, to, to come into our house, but we launched one anyway. And uh, our Elevate group, five of the people in our Elevate group are over six foot two. It's like, it's like the green room for the NBA draft camp when we have our Elevate group. There is just legs everywhere. And uh, we've had up to 12 people somehow sitting like triple decker uh, gathered in our half a lounge room. We uh, hosted our, our, some of our key team members uh, a few months ago. This, this house has got a modest size rear courtyard. That's one way to describe it. And, uh, and we were gonna do a Sunday lunch. And so I was gonna grill and we were gonna set out a couple of long tables and we invited about 12 people around. And, uh, but then the forecast came in and it was forecast raining, but not like just raining, raining, but like monsoonal raining, raining. And uh, I didn't wanna cancel. Moving indoors wasn't an option because there's no space. And so um, I, I spent about two hours that morning looking at where the rain came in because rain doesn't come in, it comes in sort of 45 degrees, but also noticing that the little bit of canopy above the courtyard area, um, 
has maybe 15 or 20 leaks. And so we were expecting 12 people over for this lunch. And I spent two hours that morning configuring the tables to, to minimize. I knew some people were gonna get wet. Uh, I even knew some people were gonna get significantly wet and I rec- recommended they bring a poncho. Um, but I spent two hours just, just trying to mathematically calculate how we could have this lunch with the least amount of people getting wet. And it was, it was quite, a, quite a feat. I'm incredibly impressed with myself. I, I'm not only nursing potentially a broken toe, I, I suspect it's broken, I'm almost I, I, I certain it's broken. Um, my, my finger is, is, is actually detached. Um, this finger is detached. I just put Band-Aid on so you didn't notice that. It was actually detached. It, it came as the result of, a, of, a, of an unfortunate um, Kent pumpkin chopping mishap in, in our kitchen of this house. The kitchen has... has Shallow benches. Do you know shallow benches? Yeah? Shallow benches suck, man. But it's got shallow benches because if they brought the benches out, there'd be no floor space to, to get into the bench. So anyway, it's fine for chopping innocuous objects, but because, because here's the thing, not only have shallow benches, there's actually overhead cupboards above the shallow benches, but, but they're, they're like here. And, and now... If you're Lady Gaga and five foot two, this won't be an issue. But if you're sort of average height, five, nine and a half me, this is, this is headbutting space. So, and again, look, cutting onions, I recommend you do lean back when you chop onions. People go, how do you stop yourself from crying? Don't lean over them. Hmm. But pumpkin, Japanese pumpkin, aka Kent pumpkin, you cook with the skin on, it's delicious. You've got to lean into that sucker. It, it ain't going to cut itself. And so I had to choose between headbutting the overhead cupboard or slicing off the top of my finger in order, and I, I opted for the finger. It just took one for the team. What a guy. But it, now I'm sharing these stories. This, this is real life for us right now, but not in any effort for anyone to feel sorry for us because I'm content that we even have somewhere to live, right? That we have a roof over our heads, which... which doesn't leak a lot. And, and then we have a kitchen to prep in and then we have food to prep in the kitchen. You can have contentment and yet don't confuse that with settling. And then finally, don't confuse comparison with inspiration. Now, as a church leader in this day and age, it can be real easy to become discontent because you see churches that the preacher is better and the crowd is big-er, and the projectors are shiny-er, and the lights move-er more. And, 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 and it's not just me that's seeing that sort of stuff, it's you that's seeing that sort of stuff. And then I could even be sitting at home going, getting discontent, comparing myself and elevate with some of these big, shiny churches, or all, and even wondering, bloody hell, I hope none of our people see this stuff. They're gonna think we really suck. And you can find that about your industry and your family and your neighbourhood and your kids and the school you send them to. And we can just find ourselves getting discouraged and feeling defeated if we compare ourselves to other people or there's a place for it, we can draw inspiration from them. 
If there are people who are in the wheelhouse of where God's called you to do, uh, what God's called you to do, or who God's called you to be, if there's people in that wheelhouse, we can actually look to them, but don't look to them to compare yourselves with them. Look to them to draw some inspiration from them. That, that God's giving them, uh, putting them in, 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 your, in your field of view to give you a glimpse of actually what's possible and even to give some clues and some keys along the way. So I listen to the podcasts of preachers that are much better preachers than I do but not to get discouraged, but to be inspired and to continue learning. I subscribe to blogs written by church leaders whose churches are way, 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 way bigger than ours because I wanna learn and be inspired and gather clues to how we can continue to grow and reach more and more people. There is a place for healthy comparison. It is the place to be inspired. And don't at any point think you are worth less just because you have less than somebody else. Do you understand? Because we're not here to compare ourselves with other people. Now, if you open our Elevate app and you tap the Bible title, it'll take you to something written by a guy named John. Now, to catch you up, if uh, you haven't been in the church's sphere for, for a while or, or for long, there's four, uh, they're called Gospels. It's kind of a churchy name. Four kind of accounts, written accounts of the time that Jesus was on the earth, the, the, particularly the public time, the 30 to 33 year period. Four, four guys wrote four separate accounts. Three of them were eyewitness accounts. And the fourth one is a guy named Luke, a doctor who retrospectively went around and interviewed the eyewitnesses and he gathered his own account. Well, one of those eyewitness accounts was written by a guy named John. And John was one of Jesus' actual chosen 12 followers. So what John wrote was actually firsthand eyewitness. I was there. And in fact, not only was I there, I was even a character in a lot of what happened when Jesus was doing His thing publicly. And so this period of this book that I wanna just drill into a little bit, this account is written by a guy named John. And what we'll discover just by reading John, a little snippet of John's eyewitness account is that comparison is not a new thing. And in fact, it appears that John had a little bit of a comparison thing going on with one of Jesus' most other, other more prominent followers, a guy named Peter. A little, bit of, a little bit of a competition, a little bit of comparison. And so John, this one little slice, wrote this about, well, what had happened is actually uh, Jesus had been killed on a cross. He'd been removed from that cross. He'd been buried in a tomb. The tomb had been sealed. And then three days later, as was customary, uh, some of his earliest followers went to the tomb to collect his body because it was after three days they would actually embalm it and bury it for good. And so Mary was the first on the scene. Early in the morning, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw the stone was moved away from the entrance. And she came at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now I've riffed on this before, but I want you to understand right now, this guy, Peter, not him, the other guy, the, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John. John's writing this. 
So John calls himself the one Jesus loved, which is ridiculous because Jesus had just died on a cross to demonstrate to the entire world that he loves everybody. But no, John, John, he either didn't get that or he just wants to make himself shine a little more than he ought to. Calls himself, not by name, he calls himself in third person, a bit like a particular president of a particular nation in our particular time. Calls himself by a third person. I hate people that do that. The other disciple, the one Jesus loved, breathlessly panting, they took the master from the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple, me, John, left immediately for the tomb. We ran, they ran neck and neck, me and Peter. The other disciple, me, John, got to the tomb first, outrunning Peter. Stupid to look in, Peter saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there, but Peter, he didn't go in. Simon Peter, oh sorry, that was John. Simon Peter That's why I hate people that write in third person. Simon Peter arrived after him. Yeah, we know that, John. You've already told him that you got there first. You've already told us that you outran Peter. Uh, Well, just in case you missed that, you need to know that Simon Peter arrived after me. Enter the tomb, observe the linen cloths lying there and the kerchief that was used to cover his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but separate, neatly folded by itself. Then the other disciple, me, John, by the way, in case you missed it, the one who'd gotten there first, uh, went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence and believed. Peter didn't believe, I believed. I believed first. I didn't just get there first, I believed first. No one yet knew from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So this little slice, you'll see at the bottom, verses one to nine, John's account, we categorise it now in chapter 20, nine Verses. This is, this is John writing, capturing the moment that, 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 that the first people on the scene had discovered that Jesus had risen from the dead. He took nine verses to account for that. And I did the math and here's how it comes out. In his nine verses, there's one reference to being the one that Jesus loved, three references to them seeing the tomb was empty and three references to John's superior foot speed. (laughs) So here we have the moment that changed history, the moment that Jesus demonstrated that you and I can live as overcomers, that you and I don't ever have to live defeated, that you and I never have to die if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus. He's telling that, he's capturing that, he's writing that, the whole world, the most incredible news that I could ever tell anybody is Jesus is risen and I'm faster than Peter. And you think, well, he might've just been having that little inferiority complex. Maybe Peter had rubbed his nose in something before. I don't know, maybe just, you know, he was having a moment. Well, let's keep reading. So what had happened is uh, they thought Jesus was gonna be the one that overturned the empire, the Roman empire, who was holding them uh, essentially uh, captives as, as Jewish people. They thought that he was gonna come, the king that God had promised and, and yet what actually happened is Jesus was killed. And, and that's not what's meant to happen. Eternal kings aren't meant to die, or so they thought. And so immediately after the, 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 they found the tomb was empty, they didn't all assume that it was Jesus had risen from the dead. They actually figured that the authorities had, had removed His body and were gonna start parading Him around the town and actually asking people, have you seen the people that used to hang around with Jesus? So they thought their life was under threat and so they hid in a room, locked themselves inside. Well, at least for a while. 
Then after that while, they, they did come out of that room, but they went back to what they used to do. Most of them used to be fishermen before Jesus called them to come and be his closest followers. And so they actually went back to fishing. Jesus has let us down. Let's go back to what we used to do. Jesus didn't meet our expectations. Let's go back to the old things that we've always done. And this is a little bit of bonus content. It's not the main point I wanna make this morning, but it's a bit of bonus content because if we're not careful, we can find ourselves doing that exact same thing. When God doesn't answer the prayer that we prayed, either in the timing that we expected or in the way that we expected, or it seems He didn't even answer at all, although He often does just by saying no to some things. We can find ourselves going back to old ways of thinking, old ways of acting, to the familiar, to the past, rather than staying planted in the waiting room, trusting that God's still working, that God's still overcoming on our behalf. So they're fishing and they came in from a, a night's fishing and they hadn't caught anything. They pulled their boats up onto the beach and a guy came up to them. Now, it actually happened to be Jesus who'd risen from the dead, but they didn't recognise him. And this guy, Jesus, who they didn't recognise, said to them, hey, I want you to go out one more time and put your nets down one more time. And they said, listen, buddy, we've been out all night. We're professional fishermen and we didn't catch a thing. So what makes you think that going out one more time and putting our nets in one more time is gonna make any difference. And Jesus said, look, go out again, only this time put your nets out on the other side and, and see what happens. Now, a little bit of bonus content here as well. You can do what you know to do in your strength and your way and get very, very, very poor or even no results. Or we can choose to pull our boats up push pause on our activity and lean into the voice of Jesus and say to him, is there anything we need to be doing differently right now? Is there something we haven't seen yet? Is there a better way that we just haven't considered yet? And it's on that very thing when Jesus gives you a word and it says one thing, put your nets out to the other side. That can be the game changer because it was in that moment that they then caught more fish in their nets than they could actually physically pull out of the water. Well, John had kept telling this story. You can scroll, scroll, scroll. When you get down to chapter 21 and verse seven, John's back at it. Then the disciple Jesus loved, me, said to Peter, hey, because uh, what Jesus went to do when they pulled the fish in is he actually cooked them uh, a barbecue breakfast, which I think is a brilliant image of Jesus serving. Fish on toast was the menu. And then the disciple Jesus loved, John, me, the guy writing it, said to Peter, it's the master. When Simon Peter realised that it was the master, he threw on some clothes for he was stripped for work and dove into the sea. See, John wanted us again to know and wanted the world to know that Jesus had risen and that he recognised Jesus first. And in fact, more importantly, that he recognised Jesus before Peter. It's not a new thing, this comparison, this one-upmanship. Jesus then did a kind of a peculiar thing, is out of them sitting around having their grilled fish on toast, he actually pulled Peter out 
and took him off to the side. When Jesus calls you out to the side, it's either really good, because you got like some special prize, or it's a real big golf moment, like. And he took Peter aside and he said, Peter, do you love me? You don't want Jesus asking you that. You, you want him to already know. You wanna be living a life of devotion. You wanna be living a life in a way that, that Jesus knows. You're living a life of worship. You're living a life of serving. You're living a life of prayer. You're living a life of relationship. You're living a life of communication. You're living a life of financial generosity. For Jesus to say, just, I'm, just, I'm just curious. Do you love me? Like, oh, come on, man. You know I love you. Case closed. No, Jesus says a second time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, Jesus, you know I love you. And then <laughs> Jesus asked him a third time, Peter, just to be clear, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, Jesus. I love you. And Jesus each time has said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. I've given, I wanna give you a mission. I wanna give you a job. You're to look after my people, to feed my sheep, to look after my people, to feed my sheep. It's pretty good. Given an assignment by Jesus, firsthand, specific, your lane, feed my sheep. John wrote all this down. Then John continued to write, Turning his head, Peter noticed the disciple Jesus loved, me, John, following right behind. And when Peter noticed me, Peter asked Jesus, Master, what's gonna happen to him? Jesus said, Peter, if I'm to live until I come again, what's it to you? Your assignment is this, follow me. So you and I have a calling and it's personal. You and I have a lane and it's specific. And your calling and your lane isn't about someone else's calling and someone else's lane. And so we shouldn't and, 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 and don't need to spend our time comparing our progress to someone in the next lane. We're to spend our time comparing our progress to, to where God's called us to be, to how God's called us to go, the sort of things that God has called us to do. It's specific, it's custom. That's the greatest thing of all. That's the, that's, the, that's the best thing I can tell you this morning is that actually you don't have to waste your time, your emotional energy. You don't have to get defeated. You don't have to get discouraged based on what someone else is doing. You can be inspired by them, but you don't have to live your life comparing to them because what's it to you? Your job and my job is specifically with what God's called us to do, with where God's called us to be, is to follow Him in our lane specifically. And so my big question and final question is, is what or whom or from where do you get your self-worth? Because by law of averages, there's a chance that some of you are still trying to prove yourself worthy of the love of a parent who's actually passed on. 
who didn't give you the love and, and, and show you the sense of worth that you thought you deserved growing up. And so you're still living uh, for their, their approval and yet they're not even here. And so you're never gonna get it. Or maybe they are still alive and, 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 and that's just bad fuel to be living fueled by wanting the approval of a parent. Maybe some of you, you you're wanting to demonstrate to an ex-spouse what they're missing. Boy, they sure screwed up when they left me. And I, I'm gonna show them. Well, you know what? It may sound sassy, but it's bad fuel. It's bad fuel. Because if you're running the race that Jesus has called you to run, fueled by trying to show other people what you're made of, trying to gain the, the, the approval of other people, you're running a race you're never gonna win because it doesn't have a finish line. It's not a lane, it's a treadmill and you're never gonna get off until you get off. We're to be fueled by who Jesus has called us to become and fueled by what God's called us to do. Our lane, our calling. And so you can actually now start to be bulletproof scrolling through social media seeing other people who may be further along in certain areas and not be threatened by them, but be inspired by them. Go looking for people and actually (laughs) subscribe to their blogs and follow them and and, and be friends with them that are further along than you and not ever feel a sense of intimidation or dread. Oh my gosh, I have to wake up to this reminder that I suck every single morning. We can actually live bulletproof from that sort of stuff because every morning we get up and we say, Jesus, today I'm gonna follow you. Today I'm not gonna settle, but I'm gonna be content. Today I'm not gonna live less than you, your best, but I'm, but I'm gonna also uh, live with purpose and expect that you're gonna use me in this season and this circumstance and this situation that I find myself in right now. This relationship, this job, this house, this financial situation, this health situation. I'm not gonna let my current circumstances, even if they're less than your promise, I'm not gonna let them rob me of my joy. I'm gonna live with a peace that passes all understanding. Comparison kills contentment. We're not meant to live by comparison. We're meant to live with a sense of calling. Hey, good. Next week, another cultural minefield that I'm gonna talk about is is overcoming the comfort of apathy. Do you know that God doesn't call us to live comfortable at all times? And that if we make comfort a goal, we will never achieve the calling of God in our lives. If we live trying to avoid discomfort, we'll never achieve and fulfill the calling God's called in our lives. So I'm gonna talk about that next week, how we can overcome the comfort of apathy. So be here. Great Mondays begin on Sundays. Bring someone and let's see God speak to them and speak to us as we continue to follow Him.